Welcome to Magic Hour. This week we've got a special treat for you. As part of the Melbourne Film Festival, uh, esteemed writer, director, producer and ideas human, Roman Coppola came into the school. Uh, Roman's had a very interesting career. Clearly he's part of one of the great film family dynasties, the Coppola family. But he's also someone who's done an incredible amount of work off his own bat. And uh, let's get the, uh, what's it, the elephant in the room out of the way. There's a lot of talk about Nepo babies these days. And uh, I guess the way I look at it is, uh, as Mark Maron would say, when you see an electrician's truck going down the road and it's uh, Luigi and Sons electricians, you don't go, who's that Nepo baby being an electrician? So the way I figure it, uh, you can't help your parents are and I think Roman's done enough incredible work that he's an artist in his own right. So he came into the school and one of our fantastic colleagues Stephen Luby who's an extremely experienced producer sat him down to ask him a bunch of questions. Roman has produced uh, such films as Moonrise Kingdom, Somewhere, The Darjeeling Limited, Isle of Dogs, On the Rocks, The French Dispatch. This, the list goes on and on. This is a human being who's put a lot of time into the more esoteric and interesting end of the industry and I'm very much looking forward to the answers that Stephen's going to tease out of him. And also, this is the first time that we've brought students into our podcasting experience. So a bunch of our directing and producing students also sat in and you'll hear some questions from them as well. Okay, without any further ado, take it away, Roman and Stephen. Roman, welcome to Melbourne. Welcome to VCA. Very Thank great you so pleasure much. to have you here. I appreciate it. Thank you. <clears throat> you have said, uh, I understand, that you love the notion of the flaneur, which is a French term, mm -hmm. uh, which means wandering around, observing life. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you care to expand on that. Yeah, uh, it's just a term I learned about a few years ago, and I thought, wow, that really resonated with me and uh, relate to that notion of exploring and looking around. And um, I live in San Francisco, and so literally as a flaneur, it sounds a little highfalutin to use that term in, uh, with regards to myself, but I'll just embrace it. Uh, I'll walk from my home to my office, and I'll take a different route. You know, I'll go through Chinatown, or I'll go through... Uh, you know, neighborhood, and it. I'm always um, really stimulated by seeing new things and poking around, and so literally I'll do it in my life, and then I try to do it in my work life, where I tend to accept invitations um, that are things I've never done before, and, uh, you know, usually my curiosity is piqued by something, and so I'll find myself in a situation, and I, I try to follow that. So that's why I'm here, actually, in Australia, and a good example of, the, of something, um, you know, kind of discovery based on interest was I mentioned in an interview that I was a fan of old amusement parks. And it turned out that the folks from Luna Park saw that and they said, oh, we'll come down and visit the park. So yesterday I got to go into the, uh, the machine room with the, uh, all the mechanical aspects of running the, the roller coaster they have there and I got to ride it. So... It's, it's working well for me to have 
different experiences based on that kind of curiosity and sort of putting things out there and being open to experiences. So did you get to go on the Scenic Railway, which is I the did. old... Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. Because in, in uh, Melbourne folklore, it's mm. an iconic place. Very much. That uh, people have so many wonderful childhood memories of. Yeah. Now, the, the interest in amusement parks uh, just strikes me as a very interesting connection with your family website. I've had a look at, at zoetrope.com, okay. uh, uh, which is a couple of family website mm-hmm. and uh, is an entree into the world, your creative world. And when I was looking at it um, uh, the other day, it just struck me mm-hmm. quite literally that it felt like a creative Disneyland. Hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful sense of adventure in all the things you have on offer there. Had you ever seen that connection yourself? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I don't, can't remember the last time I visited that website, so it's not so vivid in my in my mind's eye. But our family definitely, uh, you know, has a bit of a circus family kind of vibe. We've kind of multi generations of doing things often together. Uh, and uh, you know, I worked as a kid on various films, doing PA work, and I did makeup. It was one of my first jobs ever on a feature, um, and um, so that. I, I sort of equated it a bit more with a circus where there's multi-generations and you know, you know, film crews are often big families. So the, many of the, the team that worked on my dad's iconic movies were all the same people that were sort of like aunts and uncles. So over the years we lived together and had these experiences together and so on. So I do relish that and, um, I'm glad you had that impression. Yeah, most definitely. It felt very kind of family and mm-hmm. it felt very inclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I guess um, it, it's interesting that your family is an artistic family mm-hmm. or a circus family with mm-hmm. that element to it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you were kind of growing up as a kid in that environment, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I never really had big... A lot of clarity. You know, I, I was always interested in art and I thought, oh, it could be fun to be a painter. At one point I thought about that. I was very drawn to theatrical makeup being a kid, especially around uh, uh, Apocalypse Now where there's a lot of gore and fun makeup effects that I learned about. I was very blessed to uh, get to know Dick Smith who in the world of theatrical makeup is a super iconic person and he encouraged my interest there so that was something that interested me um you know storytelling is fascinating um i'm drawn to the reason i'm so uh happily involved with filmmaking is that it it involves so many different uh, types of endeavor writing creativity color design environment and even stuff like you know chemistry although it's less common now that we have digital imagery, but you know, there's optics and mm-hmm. mechanical devices. And so there's a lot of things that, uh, when you work on a film set, uh, you can learn about and be, con- you know, become conversant. And so I think that keeps me, uh, interested because there's so many things to explore and learn about. But to answer your question, I never thought, oh, I want to be a filmmaker in that literal sense, but I love being around the, uh, the sets that I was exposed to. And, um, you know, that's that, uh, spark of creativity that happens in that collective, uh, is uh, kind of hard to, to not want to be part of it. Mm. I'm assuming you've had the experience of, of the, the, uh, whole being greater than the sum of the parts mm-hmm. in that filmmaking family context mm-hmm. where, where 
if people collect together around an idea or a story, something happens in the chemistry Very much that so. takes it up a notch. Have you, uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, it's kind of mysterious. I can't think of a precise example that I could cite, but absolutely when, when there's a team of people that uh, are working on a, you know, in a common way or you know, with a common goal, uh, it's very magical and uh, thrilling. Um, so yeah, it's, right. it's sort of, it's hard to pin it down, but it definitely, you, you have those, uh, experiences working in, in film where that occurs and it's, mm. it's a real joy. Yes. I mean, we, we at the, uh, uh, VCA film and television school here, we very much encourage the notion of collaboration. Mm-hmm. So we, we uh, have people working in different cohorts and different mm-hmm. areas of expertise, writing, directing, mm-hmm. producing, cinematography. But we want to expose the students to the collective experience mm-hmm. uh, and, and in particular understanding each other's roles. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you've played a lot of roles and had a lot of interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just wondering how you see the way that the different creative roles in filmmaking interact to each other, in, interact with each other and how they can best do that. Hmm. Give me a specific question and I'll try to really drill down because I, I totally agree that there's this collective that is Hmm. so essential. Uh, And to digress for a second, American Zoetrope, which is, you know, my dad's company that he founded that we continue, was kind of founded, it was founded in the late 60s and it was set up in San Francisco that had a cafe culture, uh, North Beach specifically. And so there is a a camaraderie and a kind of um, support component, you know, George Lucas and my dad and others were, uh, you know, a group of young people that had a lot of, uh, passion for cinema and something, for example, uh, Apocalypse Now, which of course my dad made was something that George Lucas had developed for himself with another, uh, colleague from USC, John Melius, who's the writer. So there's something kind of baked in of this, um, you know, kind of cafe culture, people sharing, notes and thoughts and hey read this Mm. book or or something but um so that's a little shred of an example Mm. of something that our company and our family heritage is sort of rooted in but i'm happy to yeah if you pose any question i'll I'll dig right in well look i mean you've worked in multiple roles Mm -hmm. you've you've been a writer you've been a producer you've been a director and you Mm -hmm. continue to do all of that and more besides Mm -hmm. how do you how do each of those roles, how should they work towards understanding the other so that mm. the collaborative environment uh, can can best be promoted? Right. Um, it's a tricky question, but what comes to mind is that, you know, a lot of my work, uh, I've done a lot of second unit, and my first directing work professionally was for Bram Stoker's Dracula, my dad's film. I was a second unit director. And I grew up on film sets and was uh, exposed to a lot of stuff and I had a, a personal interest in theatrical magic and so my dad knew that about me and he said oh well let's because uh, early cinema was largely um, promoted and developed by magicians literally we know of Melies, of course the famous one but there were others that were the first filmmakers because it was a sort of a amusement gadget he thought I would be suited to um to have that role as a second unit director because I knew those, I had a love and appreciation for magical illusions. Anyway, the point um, 
uh, trying to express is that um, when you're on a film set, the director really is the leader. And when I do second unit, I don't have any um, ambitions to do something like, oh, I think we should do this or that. That's my own thing. I'm really trying to channel uh, the director's uh, wishes. And that's true with my work for Wes, uh, where I'm just trying to get in his head and all the, because we have a deep friendship, we've known each other for a long time, I have a little uh, aid to sort of get in because we have a history together and have a sense of what he may or may not like. But um, that's also true with our writing. Um, but I'm really trying to serve him totally. And I think that is some advice I can share, which is, uh, you know, the director really is the creative leader and all these people are there to, to support. But uh, you have to be uh, able, and it's a, can be a real pleasure. Like, how can I help you? How can you be of service? And that's something that you, you kind of check your ego at the door. I mean, your ego can be stroked when you have a great idea that fits in with the director's wishes. So that's a tangible thing I can suggest, which is to uh, just take pleasure in trying to uh, really deeply serve the filmmaker. Mm. Um, and then when I work as a director and it's my leadership, then I hope for that as well, you know, and that's, that's something that can be hard for some people where they have their own ambitions or uh, preferences and so on that are, you know, maybe outside of what the director is wishing for. Mm. But it's certainly true in my experience that everybody gets their turn. So in the, yep. the particular project you're on, you might be in that service role, but mm -hmm. the time will come when you have the opportunity to be the carrier of the creative vision mm -hmm. and you've had that experience yourself. Definitely. So your collaboration with Wes Anderson, mm -hmm. this is a, a long range thing, mm -hmm. a, a great friendship and you've collaborated at many levels. How did that all begin and evolve? Uh, it began, we were uh, friend, friends. He made a film um, for Bottle Rock. He made a short film of Bottle Rocket prior to making the feature. And a friend of mine who's, uh, whose name is Ellen Kit Carson, he's no longer living, but he was a kind of iconic indie movie person. He was in uh, David Holzman's Diary, if you've ever seen that. If you haven't, it's worth checking out. Um, and he was also the screenwriter for Paris, Texas. So he was a person of note in the world of indie cinema. We were friendly, and um, he's from Texas, and Wes is from Texas. And he said, oh, you got to check out this short film by this group of guys in, I think they shot in Austin. Um, in any case, um, uh, I came to see that short film, and... I met Wes, we were friendly, and um, then a year or two later, he made Rushmore, which starred my cousin, Jason Schwartzman, and there's kind of a funny story where uh, we were at a party in our home in Napa, and uh, my sister was chatting with a friend who was a casting director, and my sister said, oh, what are you working on? I said, oh, I'm working with this guy, Wes Anderson, we're trying to find a really dynamic, intelligent you know, a uh, unique character for this leading role. And Sophia said, oh, we should meet my cousin Jason. He's right over there. And sure enough, Davia, who's the name of this casting person, met my cousin Jason. He got the role ultimately. And uh, that started a great collaboration. So when Jason became so close with Wes, and I'm very close with Jason, we all sort of uh, became palsy. And it was during Life Aquatic that Wes, um, we went out to visit... And I told him, I said, I've done a lot of second unit. If you need any help, feel free to call me. You know, I'd be happy to help in any way. 
and he sort of uh, he said, "Oh, I don't really do that." He's kind of you know very uh, control freak is a pejorative sounding word, but he's really trying to get exactly what he wants every single shot. He he is very precise about his needs, and and he is uncomfortable just. Uh, you know, letting things out. So he doesn't want some material to be shot that he's not really supervising. In any case, um, it, it turned out that there was some, some shots of a boat that we needed to get. And I said, well, let me go handle that. And so I shot it and he came to appreciate, uh, that I could help him get these shots and do it under a way that, uh, to his satisfaction and to under his, his sort of design desires. And that sort of kicked it off. And then, we became closer, and then when um, he was wishing to do Darjeeling Limited, he, Jason, and I were quite close, and he thought the th the trio of these three friends kind of uh, was similar to the relationship of three brothers, and so he proposed that we write it together, and then we had further adventures in India, and the rest is kind of history. So it was a gradual thing, but really rooted in friendship and mutual appreciation and um you know just enjoying each other's company i mean it's a, a wonderful sense of the family connection mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. and uh we're always encouraging students here to find your people so mm -hmm. to speak to, Definitely. to find your collaborative team and, and it happens at, in your case in a quite organic way mm -hmm. and that's, that's just lovely to hear yeah tell us a little bit more about the adventures in india that sounds like fun we had fun you know we we wrote uh, together we were in Paris because Jason had finished Marie Antoinette, my sister's movie, and I had done some second unit there. And uh, so we were in Paris and we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, musing about what would happen with these three brothers on this adventure. Kind of, uh, it was kind of had a, a little point of inspiration from the film Husbands by John Cassavetes, if anyone's seen that. Kind of a couple of guys that are a little unhinged. And so we we started to daydream about what it could be and kind of formed a basic story. And then we went to India um, with our notebooks and we tried to invite things to happen. We would ch check out temples and we would be a little, uh, you know, we, we tried to be in the spirit of those characters that were kind of uh, open to anything. And we took trains around and had these various adventures and, and wrote and used a lot of the you know, the material that we were exposed to. So it, it's looking back, it's a little hard because the movie displaces some of those memories, but uh, it, we just, it kind of grew out of those experiences. So that, I mean, that's a, a really interesting, organic and hands-on writing process. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that is, is the best way to write, to be kind of exposed to experience in that way, to immerse in it, mm -hmm. and then to see what comes out of the organic experience? You know, I think writing is very mysterious. It can work any which way. You know, you could sit in a, a room and write something just purely from your imagination. You could have experiences. So I would be reticent to say, oh, this is a way to do it. Um, I can share, because I know with students, they're kind of curious, oh, what are some of the practical things that you do? And I'll share a few things that might be appreciated. Um, you know, one thing with Wes is that we write pretty much, th there's a sense of where we're going, what we're doing. There's a There's a world and say with Asteroid City or French Dispatch, we kind of have a sense of the world we're sort of occupying and a few, uh, some clarity about the characters, just as a who they are, a sense of that. But then it pretty much follows a, 
uh, a linear pattern. The opening scene happens, and they say, what happens next? Well, this could happen, and this happens next. And it, it's sort of, it's done in a linear fashion. There's very little outlining or kind of daydreaming about what could happen at the end or the middle. So whether that's good or bad or the right process for for any of you guys who are students or are interested, that is sort of how we tend to work. Um, and Wes is very practical. You know, sometimes I'll digress. And, oh, you know, what does this mean? Or what are we trying to say? And he'll just sort of dismiss and say, the door opens. What happens next? Who comes in? What do they say? And it's very practical. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun to work in that way and to kind of let go of, let your subconscious maybe poke around in the things that maybe have uh, some resonance or meaning, but we talk, we do not talk about concepts at all. Mm. We just talk about practical things. Um, and then another thing that uh, I've noticed working with Wes um, is a kind of an ability to, um, to uh, have a little bit of delusion, self-delusion about allowing something to come to be without judging it. And so, we might be working on a scene and Wes will just start to uh, riff and say, oh, maybe this happens or that happens. Da, da, da. And he'll sort of take it pretty far. And part of me is like, no, oh, that's not so good. Or ah, that, that, that wouldn't really make sense. But to to be able to silence the, the that voice in your head that's kind of judging too soon and just go with it. Just a little... Just what if this happened? And you just embrace the possibility. And to have that kind of attitude where you're just willing to go there. Mm. Uh, and then you can go there and then you can say, oh, well, that doesn't make sense or I don't like this or whatever. But that's a hard talent to develop. And I appreciate it when it happens. So just like be genuinely able to uh, put one foot in front of the other and just, you know, kind of stumble around and not... Uh, censor yourself too soon and say, well, that's not going to work or whatever. So that's something I can encourage people to try to develop that, mm. that knack for t taking it, you know, for seeing it through and deferring the judgment, uh, because that's something we all struggle with. And especially when you're starting out it's like, oh, this is no good or whatever, you know, and to try to silence that. I know my dad also in his way, his advice for younger people when they ask, is just, you know, write, put, flip the page over, put it behind you, don't read it, don't, you know, just proceed. Uh, and I think that by and large is, is pretty good advice. Mm. Well, we have a number of uh, uh, students with us here mm -hmm. who I'm sure are encouraged and enthused mm -hmm. by those reflections. So mm -hmm. I might just uh, ask some of the students with us here in the room if they'd yeah. like to ask you a question, uh, Roman. Uh, perhaps, uh, does anybody want to volunteer a question? I'll, I'll volunteer. Okay, so Scott. Uh, <coughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm playing. No, you, my... you can sit back. It's, oh, it's, absolutely. It's very I wasn't sure if I would yeah. actually. Um... Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, um, so studios don't exactly find comedies bankable anymore mm -hmm. um, like they used to. So I guess my question is what advice do you have for a young person who's very interested in writing an unconventional comedy? Kind of like the ones that you write with Wes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a tricky question. I would just say proceed and do, you know, do all you can to put your, what you see, what you appreciate down on paper and express it, make a short film, uh, 
share it in any which way you can. You know, the studios and movies, you know, the movie business at large is very weird and mercurial. And I think you just have to 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 do your work, uh, do the things that appeal to you, and 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 uh, uh, that's sort of the best you can do. You know, just. Uh, Put it down. Express what you, what it is that you see in your mind's eye, and not concern yourself with that. Um, that's easy easier said than done because then, of course, you want to make the film. But uh, I would not try to fit into any thing that you're seeing out there or perceiving because it could change on a dime. And everyone is looking for something fresh and and a new voice and so on. So you have that. Uh, advantage that you have you could be the person with a voice that resonates in a, for a new generation and so on so i wouldn't uh hesitate just to do what you think is right another word that i you know as i think about things or people ask questions and so on is, is intuition and i feel that uh, you know tapping into your intuition what you think is best it, it relates to the other point i made of uh you know, having the, the ability to just be kind of semi-delusional in your, as you explore things. Um, when I say delusional, it's more just like, just let it be and then mm -hmm. deal with it later. But using your intuition, like, I really think this would be funny. I really think I want to see this. Uh, and you ask yourself deeply uh, that you're a great guide, you know, that's all you have really. And I do find in my life, and I'm lucky because I have people like Sophia or Jason or Wes, you know, there are these sounding boards of like, hey, I think this would be a really fun movie. Or, and, and then you have a, a person you can share it with. But a lot of times when you share something with someone you're close to, it's just they're sort of on your wavelength. It's just another way to access your intuitive sense anyway. Because when I tell Sophia an idea for a film or something, I sort of frame it in the way I want it to be if that makes any sense before I share it with her, because, um, she, anyway, we're so close that it's sort of like, almost like talking to yourself a little bit mm -hmm. and tapping into that inner voice or creative wellspring or whatever you want to call it. I call it intuition. So anyway, hopefully that's helpful. Thank you. It yeah. was very helpful. Oh, good. Angie, do you have a question? Um, I can't answer the question mm -hmm. I was going to ask. I was going to, mentioned you know ego and, and intuition and stuff mm -hmm. like that but i think you just answered that mm -hmm. but in terms of you know when you're when you are writing and you're going through that whole process mm -hmm. like how do you remain focused especially when you are like getting feedback from other people mm -hmm. or opening yourself up to other people like how do you remain focused does that go back to like sticking to your intuition or do you listen to your ego or do you you know sit beside it like yeah it's tricky i mean i I am very lucky when I work with Wes or others or I have an assignment, you know, I do videos or other commercial projects and things. There's often the pressure of like, okay, Wes is calling. We got to talk about this thing. Oh, I got to, got to get it together. When you're totally self-generating your own thing and you don't really have that um, obligation, I get it. And I know I like myself, I've, I've started some writing things like, oh, I'm not really feeling it. I'll just wait and see. So uh, I think it's a very real problem, especially in our modern times where your phone is pinging or, oh, I'll just read the news or whatever, and uh, you pull away. So I wish I could genuinely like give you some advice that's not totally generic, but um, 
it does help to work with another person or to have a sounding board or a colleague say, hey, I'm working on this thing. Like, all right, I'm working on my thing too in a week. Let's talk about it and use other people, the leverage the kind of social component uh, of coming through because, you know, you need to push hard sometimes with your work and it's easy. When it's just you, it can be hard. So I would say that would be practical to like team up with another person as a, not necessarily as a writing colleague, but as a, someone to keep you in check, you know, so that, that you come through. We definitely have this notion that we've all worked in and explore of the, of the writer's room, which mm -hmm. is a, a particular thing in television, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, and uh, in my experience, that's all about creating this sort of environment mm -hmm. to interrogate the intuitive idea. Mm -hmm. um, would you go so far as to say that some of these collaborations that you, you're, you've had with, with Wes or with Sophia or with others t takes the form of a writer's room? Is it as formal as that? Not really. Sophia, the way I work with her, I do a lot of second unit for her where she needs some help filming stuff. She's not so technically oriented. And for like Marie Antoinette, there were some horse riding sequences and things that were kind of outside of her comfort zone. And I would help her with that. I did, there was a, in her recent film On the Rocks, there was a bit of a car chase moment. And she's like, ah, help me. I don't, that's not my thing. So I have a little kind of a role I fill with her. She really is the writer behind her work. I will read her scripts and suggest an idea and I've collaborated a bit with, you know, maybe like anyone would, you know, maybe shorten this or expand that or whatever, but it's not at all like a writer's room. Uh, with Wes, there can be a kind of quasi writer's room where, where he, Jason and I often, because we've done things together, it's just kind of banter and like, what if this, what if that? And Jason is very funny as you can tell from his work and just free and has the most, you know, uh, remarkable ability just to spew crazy things. And then I often have a little more of an editorial mind where I'll sort of, I'll take the beginning of that and the end of that. But when we work with Wes, um, he's the director, he's the leader. He's had defined, like we're doing a film about three brothers who go to India. He, he's sort of in charge. And, um, so it's kind of, can be funny cause, uh, we'll be working. It's like, Oh, what could happen now? And I'll be like, I got a great idea. Oh my God. Okay. This happens. And he's like, nah. And totally, you know, something I thought was really had merit is has no place. And I'll say, well, this is a really stupid idea, but he could do this. It's like, that's it. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, you just have to be willing to, yeah. to fail and to, to go there and, um, but I have worked in a writer's room because I was involved with a show called Mozart in the Jungle, which uh, had a somewhat traditional writer's room. And uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's um, it's a whole other mode of working. That's not something I've done beyond just for that, that show. Mm. But, you know, collective of people and pitching ideas and, and uh, you know. Hmm. So, I mean, your, your your experience of this has come very much out of the family environment in mm -hmm. a way, and I use that kind of broadly of just a collaboration of people that uh, you know or have met or mm -hmm. have a simpatico with, which I, is different, I guess, from the, the more formal writer's room. Mm -hmm. But or the, the creative uh, kind of process and tensions are the same in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. um, so now, Lewis, do you have any uh, questions for Ryan? Uh, um, yeah, just about your work with... Wes Anderson, mm -hmm. and apologies if there's a bit too much uh, interpretation on top of this, but 
uh, from Darjeeling Limited through to, say, <coughs> French Dispatch, um, I've sort of noticed that there's been a shift away from, like, interrogation of sort of sentimentality and interpersonal relationships, and they've become more meditations on life and the purpose of art, and just, has that been quite a conscious shift, or is that just an evolution of your sort of artistic outlook? Uh, or is that yeah. completely <laughs> well, into that? Well, no, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, again, we don't really talk in those terms. Um, we just sort of, Wes put something out there, like, well, let's explore this, and we explore it. Uh, so I never really step far enough away to to, to, to analyze it that way. Um, it's true that the, what I thought a little bit about, which maybe relates, is that uh, Darjeeling was a you know narrative storyline with three characters and it progressed through time and they had this adventure and French Dispatch is kind of fractured it's a, multi, a group of stories um, and Asteroid City when you have a chance to see it is similarly kind of like a little puzzle box where there's different I don't want to say realities but different uh, aspects and and um, I think and I don't know why or I can't explain it but there's just a curiosity of exploring you know kind of other ways of you know, what a movie you know, other uh possibilities for film and you know i think wes he's uh you know he's very free he can sort of just wherever his imagination sort of takes him he just goes there hmm. is this is there a next project with wes has that started to there is i can't really talk about it but there is something uh that's the next one that has been written and um, it is uh, stalled because of the writers and actor strike. Mm. So once the, that strike is resolved, we hope soonish, mm. then that could begin. Mm. So b being a, a, a writer yourself, mm -hmm. um, uh, you would understand the, what's behind the actor strike and, and mm -hmm. it's something that we're removed a little bit mm -hmm. from here in Australia. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on, on the issues to hand there. Yeah, I, I'm a little embarrassed. I am a Writers Guild member, so I support the strike as it you know, relates to getting better conditions for writers. I'm not so conversant on all the the specifics. Um, uh, you know, it's very unfortunate. Well, interestingly to me is one of the issues is AI which is a fascinating subject matter to talk about how it relates to creativity and filmmaking. Um, and, you know, that's one of the issues that they're trying to put a handle on. Um, and uh, yet, the, well, when the prior writer's strike happened years ago, reality TV is what blossomed out of that because there was no written narrative material, so they did reality TV. And my only fear is that, oh, well, now... There's a bunch of studio executives like typing into chat GPT, <laughs> looking for ideas, and it might accelerate uh, how that device could be, you know, used. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, basically what's happened, as far as I can discern, is that in the past the movie business was a, you know, was in, in the original days founded by movie people, the, the studio leaders, and it was a community of people that were making movies. And there would be disputes with labor and actors and writers and things over the years, but it was a entity, a filmmaking collective of people that were had, that was their life and their business. And now the streamers are basically tech companies and what's left of the studios are subsidiaries of big corporations. Mm -hmm. And so there really isn't that cohesive, like, let's find a solution, collective feeling. It's very fractured. 
And I think the artists, actors and writers, rightfully so, are feeling like this needs to be a line more for the future and making interesting work and supporting artists' voices and so on. So, so I do you know, support that notion and, uh, I think it's just bad timing and bad circumstance, uh, in that, the uh, you know, there really aren't studios anymore in, mm. in the classic sense. It's just kind of, uh, you know, tech people and bankers and so on. I mean, the technology offers so many yin and yang possibilities, mm-hmm. doesn't it? There's mm-hmm. the danger of it all, it all running away from mm-hmm. the artist and being captured by technology and corporations, but yeah. the technology also offers alternative futures. And uh, I understand that you're working uh, with a system of uh, script and project development using mm-hmm. blockchain technology. We are, yeah. And um, so how, how are you kind of using that technology to kind of further artistic voice? Well, I'm, I am a fan of technology and I've sort of grew up around it. Uh, in fact, our family, even my dad's grandfather was a machinist and he built the Vitaphone. He was he didn't invent it, but he built it. And the Vitaphone was the device that allowed synchronous sound oh. for the jazz singer Warner Brothers. So, my you know we just have there's something maybe genetics or whatever, but there's an interest in technology and film art and how it fits together. And I grew up. My dad has always been a sort of a gadget person, and he bought some of the first. Um, a mixing console of, to do sound work for the early Zotrop movies and Apocalypse Now, you know, was very adventurous with regards to uh, multi, uh, you know, 5.1 uh, music mix. And uh, he was one of the first to uh, use video cameras and video assist. Uh, and so, and so I, I grew up around this and editorial devices. Now it's very common. You can cut on your Mac, but over the years, there were a lot of different steps to get there. So I grew up around that. I've always been uh, into and like new new technologies, new ways we could do stuff. And when I learned about the blockchain, uh, and it's still rather mysterious because it's so hard to understand. But this ledger, this open ledger of um, that's immutable and has this um, foundation of uh, kind of democratic uh, structure, decentralized. Um, some colleagues and I cooked up this idea of making a film community that's called DCP or Decentralized Pictures that is basically a place for people who love movies, largely students and new voices, to sort of come together and have a place where they can put forth their their work and have it be um, considered by the community. And the way we it works is we have these various kind of grants or prizes that are put forth and we've had some nice luck. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, who to me is like the icon of icons when it comes to indie filmmaking and also studio filmmaking, he put up several hundred thousand dollars to be parsed out, hundred thousand dollars each for finishing funds for a film. And so he uh, endowed this prize. We put a hundred K up and we invited participants to load their film that needed the funds, why they needed it, show the trailer, show the passion. And the community sort of upvoted the project that had the most merit and the top three contenders are sort of review board checked out. And sure enough, the one that was selected by the community was the one that had the most merit. And we gave this hundred K to the film and the film I believe is now complete and is often running a very well-made movie. So we're really proud of it. 
So that's one example, and we're trying to populate our site with these various opportunities. Uh, recently, Kevin Smith, who's a comedic filmmaker, sponsored a $40,000 uh, prize to sponsor a um, short film, comedic short film, that he would mentor. And again, the collective sort of, everyone pitched and said, oh, I want to do this, or this is why I, I should get this opportunity. It was upvoted. And they just shot that film a few weeks ago and it's getting completed and he's going to show it at his theater. And um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and we're just trying to sort of keep our momentum going. To... And so it's kind of a, a democratic vote of the members of the organization. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Basically, the way it works with the blockchain is that you <laughs> don't quiz me on this because it's confusing, but basically you in order to like say you say we're doing a screenplay competition and you were vying for it, you would uh, acquire these tokens that we have as part of our, to operate this thing, and say you put 10 tokens to submit your thing. And then all the other participants get a portion of the tokens that you put forth to be part of this. The beauty of it is you don't need money to participate. Any other contest or any other um, you know, film festival or whatever, it just it costs, you know, it costs money. But you could participate in the community by voting on things and uh, part, uh, the more you participate the more you collect tokens so it's kind of has a a means by which you can get these tokens you don't have to pay for them with money necessarily and then the, there's sort of an economy of people um you know you putting you're trying to vie for something and then people uh, evaluating it and, and receiving something so it's sort of an exchange that's all on the blockchain and this ledger that can't be monkeyed with. So mm -hmm. unlike other types of contests and things where you never quite know, did they really see it or did, you know, what happened? It's all, it's all present. And even if you don't win the thing that you're seeking, there's uh, various, um, you know, community building and discord channels because hey, I like your thing. Oh, let's talk about it. And so we're trying to kind of go back in a way to that zoetrope ideal. I mentioned the sort of cafe culture where people are putting their stuff out there and it becomes a bit of an exchange mm. and be sort of a conduit to Hollywood. That's what we offer as a, as an entity that when things rise up that we can introduce it to agents and colleagues and kind of make an introduction because the movie business is so insular that we're trying to help, you know, find a mm. path. I mean, I'm sure there are many students here listening and watching <laughs> who would love to know how to, be part of this. Well, I'll, I'll put one specific challenge out, which is I put a, as a way to sort of seed things and kind of get people involved, I put together a little contest that says, that's called, it's, it's sponsored by me. The prize is de minimis, it's like 2,500 bucks, but mentorship by me, like you could show me what you're doing or I'll talk to whoever it is. And basically the only criteria is that you've made a movie of any type that's, you know, between two minutes and 10 minutes or something. And so it's totally open to anyone who's done anything, uh, music video, short film, documentary, whatever. And I, I sort of put it out there as a bit of a challenge, like, hey, let's get some, some, some voices in there. But that's a specific thing that after we're done, you can go decentralized.pictures, get a couple of tokens, put your thing up, and maybe you'd, you'd have a, a chance mm. to do that. And that's a, that's a worldwide community? It's a worldwide community. It's, we have pockets of participants in you know, Romania, sort of outlying, it just, it's sort of random, you know, how that happens with internet stuff. The only 
barrier is the submissions must be in English because we don't have the means to to um, to consider things to in other languages. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll find out more yeah, about that, good. but everyone here would be very interested. Good. So I might now throw to uh, our, our broader audience outside the booth here, um, just to see if anybody would like to ask Roman a question. Um, feel free. It's uh, open mic time. Don't feel obliged, but Andrew, Andrew's got a question. Uh, yeah, my question was about your project timelines and... Um, like, do you work on usually one project at a time or do you juggle multiple things? And how long would that usually take for each project? Um, I do many different types of projects. Um, so a, a project, a script project with Wes will take eight or nine months or something like that. So just a general rule of thumb. And we often work remotely and then we'll get together and it sort of depends on how frequently we can get together. Uh, I just did a short, a group of short documentaries that was sponsored by Centauri, the Japanese whiskey company that stars Keanu Reeves. And it's, it just came out recently. You can check it out. And it's these, uh, four, uh, sort of three minute, uh, mini docs that explore the culture of Japan and how that culture relates to, uh, whiskey making and stuff. So it's kind of branded content, but I was very stimulated by the things I learned. And that took, you know, like five months, or so in the world of commercials and uh, a lot of times there's it really it goes every which way because things can be very accelerated and you're shooting like 10 days after you get introduced to something that's kind of why I like it to be honest sometimes um, uh, it, it can be very stimulating just to be like to, to jump into something but the t uh, time frames you know very widely uh, I did a um, Paul McCartney music video about a year and a half ago, and right, from start so to finish, yeah, it was like three no, weeks really or something. Well, you know, it's just no, it's no, every no, which thing. Right. Other questions? Question gonna be uh, in the filmmaking journey. There are lots of people joining, and suddenly they're quitting. And uh, and there are so many reasons they, they tell me maybe their the arts have lots of boundaries and I don't I lose my passions and mm -hmm. maybe the project not gonna work and sometimes it confuses me is my problems or this I just need facing the situation like this. So as I understand it, you're sometimes sometimes there can be external forces that discourage you from making something because it doesn't feel like it's perhaps welcome. Is that kind of the gist of it? You know my thought on this subject is I well I met a filmmaker I have a production company and we do largely videos and commercials and that type of short form thing and I met this filmmaker and he he was trying to have a position on our roster and he said oh um this summer I decided I was gonna make a movie every Wednesday and I was like oh that's kind of cool and so yeah last Wednesday didn't work out so good but this Wednesday I have a great idea and it really impressed me. And it's something I think about when people ask me, it's like, well, that's pretty cool. He's making a movie every Wednesday and it can be bad. It can be amazing. Who knows what it is, but it's sort of immaterial. And it, my belief is that if you, if you enjoy making movies, if it's something that you feel is you have a desire to do and you have a passion towards it, you just do it. And whether 
it's good or bad or is recognized or you become famous, you have a professional life doing it, is kind of out of your hands. You know, you just, if you do the thing and you became an old man, you say, you know, I made movies every Wednesday for my whole life, you know, that would be a pretty good life to lead if that's what you love doing. So um, I think, uh, and the more you do something, it's a fact that you get better and better and better at it. And the more you do something, the more chance there is that it'll be seen by someone or you'll find a colleague like, oh, wow, you made that thing and you resonate. So it's kind of a no-lose proposition just to do the thing you love doing and you can have the satisfaction of doing doing the thing you love. Mm -hmm. And if it all works out, maybe it's a profession and uh, there'll be other rewards, but it's kind of outside of your hands. Just do the thing, you know. An Australian colleague of mine who uh, worked in Hollywood for some years and then uh, came back and I worked with him for a while immediately afterwards told me that even in Hollywood, and we have the perception of Hollywood of being swimming in money, I know that's probably not true, mm -hmm. but even in, in Hollywood, which is such a big industry, the only thing that ever gets a project made in the end is the dedication and persistence of the creative team, mm -hmm. uh, just being totally dedicated to it. And I'm assuming that is true. I think that is true, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because people say, oh, how can I get an agent, uh, which is often a, something you wish to have as a young person to get an agent, but agents don't want to do anything. I say that with a bit of uh, sort of affection, but they want to find a some talented person that they can ride their coattails and they can get invited to parties and so on. So you're not going to find someone who's going to see something in you that hasn't you, you know that you you need to to be the one that shines and um but to take a, f further what you're saying but you need to drive it you know no one's going to say oh this guy's great he should do this thing for me you know you need to uh to make it happen mm -hmm. through persistence and dedication and, and that result love for it in a way yeah mm -hmm. any uh other questions Hi. So we study um, writing for um, for several years, and uh, for the past, like from 1970s, we we read Sitfield. Now we 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 read uh, Robert McKee and Dan Harmon, those kind of like writing. Mm -hmm. What's the most important thing that you you think it's um, the the change that uh, in the past, in terms of methodology, mm -hmm. uh, writing methodology, was the most Biggest difference. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I I'm aware of McKee, and I know there's some iconic books that have been very helpful. Um, I've glanced at some of those things. I'm sort of curious, and I'll flip through it. And oftentimes, there's something stimulating, or oh, that's a good idea. But um, it's hard for me to speak to trends and how thinking of screenwriting or or certain structured methodology how it tracks over time. Uh, and I would, I mean, anything you're curious about and you learn is fantastic and that there's nothing um, I would say that would counter, like, oh, don't read that book. But I think it's, it's beyond my understanding. I don't track that. And I think, um, you know, to speak from your heart, it's all obvious stuff I'm saying. Do things that, that you feel, wow, this is, I can't wait to share this with people. Uh, that is something that's really, you know, from from you as an individual, um, 
you know, those are the things to, to, to seek and however it comes out, how, whatever form. But, um, yeah, it, my advice is kind of generic, which is just do what you love and, and follow your nose, use your intuition, learn what you can from those things to the degree it's helpful to you, but not to rely on a certain structure methodology. Um, and, uh, you know, cinema, and I know my dad has this feeling is, you know, it's a relatively young art form. It's been around for a hundred years or whatever it's been now or a little longer, but it's not a fixed thing. I mean, this is, it's not like we figured everything out. I mean, there's every possible, uh, it's a very adventurous art form that, you know, as young people, like that's, you should be thinking like, how can I, uh, make, you know, express who I am in this way in new ways. And we see whether it's the French new wave or Italian cinema, whatever these chapters of time that we sort of can point to, but that's sort of the beauty of it is that there could be new, uh, developments and voices and, and vitality. And so I would think more in those terms, like what can you do to, to, uh, explode it open and to be even all the more on the vanguard of what it could be, you know, to the degree that it's, that's who you are. You know, you have to be genuine to yourself. Hmm. One final question and then I've got a few, but, uh, uh, yeah, my question was, um, uh, these past few weeks while we were anticipating your visit, uh, you know, we were thinking, oh, we need to, uh, everyone in the, in the studio was talking about brushing up on their, their cinema history and, um, you know, watching a back catalog of films and these types of things. And kind of got me thinking about this perceived, um, high low divide in cinema mm -hmm. and, um, I'd love to know your take on that. I mean, do you think that this is something that we just perceive or is it real? Can, can we, in, can we, are we allowed to enjoy, you know, perceived bad films or trashy films and still appreciate, you know, really well-crafted films? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'd love to know if you, if you think the sort of one can exist without the other. Yeah. Uh, interesting question. I don't really reflect on it. I, I'm not biased. I like, you know, certain trashy movies. I mean, it's hard to, to compare, you know, when you see a movie, or I'm just speaking totally from my own experience, but if you see a movie that, like a, a Fellini to me is, a, you know, up there as a, one of the greats, if not the great filmmaker and what he had made, and you compare it to uh, some schlocky, you know, um, sequel or whatever, guilty pleasure thing, it's sort of hard for me to like, so yeah, well, they're the same. I don't see it that way. But, I think, um, you know, trashy cinema can be very stimulating. Uh, you know, like John Waters is a person who is such, such an adventurous guy in that regard. I don't just, I'm not quite sure if I'm qualified to answer it, but I, I'm not a, personally drawn to like a lot of trashy stuff. Just like, oh, I got this awful cannibal movie or whatever that I'm drawn to. That's sort of the beauty of art is that there's every possible taste. And uh, so I'm just a big yes, you know, anything that stimulates you. And if you could draw some elements in, I mean, we see like someone like Tarantino would be a good example of someone who just loves uh, B-movies in such a deep way. And yet he's made su such excellent movies that are his own voice. So I would say anything that stimulates you is great. That I, helps. I read some uh, very interesting research recently that uh, had investigated what the most popular films in the UK and Britain were in the 1960s, which was 
the the era of hippie culture and uh, swinging London, etc., and uh, you know all sorts of you know socio political advances. And the answer came back loud and clear that the Carry On films. Carry on camping, carry on up the Khyber were the most popular, mm. and they're definitely at the uh, the trashy end, right. I might say. But people love them. To each his own. <laughs> so, uh, Roman, you're um, here uh, in Melbourne uh, uh, partly for the uh, Never Permanent Festival mm-hmm. uh, and conference, and I'm just wondering if you could talk to that a little bit, what, what uh, your involvement in the conference mm-hmm. is and, and the, the explorations that the conference is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm learning myself. I'm. I had done a, uh, a Google Me. Uh, I semi permanent was the organization that approached me ten years ago. We did this uh, sort of online event that was very enjoyable. I did a kind of a uh, my version of a talk show, and uh, it was one of the first usages of uh, Google Meet. So that was kind of fun for me, sort of using new technology. Uh, and so I had some friends in that organization and I'd participated in a book that they had made and they invited me to come down and, and to be part of this event. And I'm learning myself like, oh, who's going to be there? and yeah. What's the theme of it? But, uh, you know, it's a creative conference with a lot of, uh, you know, the attendees are all in creative industries or interested in that. And I think, you know, the emphasis is the future. And so technology, creativity, where that comes together and, uh, I'll be speaking a bit about DCP, which is, we talked about how, it, uh, you know, something I'm involved with to use technology uh, to promote uh, young filmmakers. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of just open. We're going to do it tomorrow and hopefully people will be engaged with what, where we take it. And it sounds like it's it's leaning into the positive future of the interaction between creativity and technology mm-hmm. rather than the feared future. Yeah. I think anyone who, I mean, we've seen as technology and art have fused together, like when photography came about, I'm sure a lot of engravers were freaking out like, oh, there goes my lithostone, you know, whatever block of uh, lithography or whatever. But we love photography and look at all the things that we can do with that. And so I think uh, it's certainly disruptive and confusing, but, um, you know, uh, wonderful new tools to use. You know, the biggest thing that I wonder about is because the AI is so self, you know, it derives from what has been done before, that the last thing we need in our creative world is to be rehashing, kind of get more and more circular and confined you know we want to blow open uh so it's just a matter how it's used but uh, that that's the area that's the the weirdest which is how you know because it derives from established material how we can not make that where it takes us Mm -hmm. but um in my experimentation i've sort of just goofed off with chat chat gpt it's very stimulating and uh, like an incredible parlor trick, you know, and so see how it can be used hmm. in practical I mean, ways. There has to be, given the boundlessness of creativity, there has to yeah. be a creative way to use it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm an optimist in that regard. Absolutely. Just to go back finally to mm-hmm. the Coppola family, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I had a look at the Zoetrope website, and there's, uh, uh, you know, reference to all the activities that the, that the family and the filmmaking community does, but there's also reference to cafe culture and wine. Mm-hmm. So, and I know the family has some wineries in mm-hmm. the Napa Valley. Yeah. Um, how involved are you with uh, that part of the 
I'm not so involved. I we my dad has um, established or he established a winery called the Francis Coppola uh, Vineyard, or it's uh, Francis Ford Coppola Presents. That's a winemaking company, and that's something he put a lot of effort into. And um, he actually sold a certain portion of it to another company, and took the the value that he had earned to make a very ambitious movie that he's actually in Georgia cutting right now. So that was a, uh, a, a way that he used his kind of business life to subsidize doing something that he really cares about deeply as an artist. So he has a new film called Megalopolis, which is around the corner. It'll be ready next year. Um, I sort of digressed because I was talking about the winery and I, no, brought into where it, yeah, it, it no, had taken him. Happy to talk about the film um, as well. But um, and then we have a another vineyard called Inglenook, which is um, on the property of our home property in Napa Valley, which is the wine region in the Bay Area, and uh, it's it's a um, it's, it's a wine business that's been around for a hundred years, and my dad recently sort of uh, um, restored it in effect, and so I participate somewhat where I. I have an addition of wine that I participate in, supervise a bit, but it's not really my, my, it's just, it's kind of a, a little bit of a fun side project. Mm. Oh, it just struck me in, in, in looking at the website that the family connection and food and wine and cafe mm -hmm. culture all feeds into art and mm -hmm. fun. There seems mm -hmm. to be a, a connect, organic connection between yeah, all these things. Definitely. How much, uh, do you know about Megalopolis and how much are you able to say? I know a lot about it in that I was filming in Georgia for about four months this last year. So I was present uh, doing second unit. And, um, you know, it's not my role to speak about it specifically, but it's my dad's, uh, you know, ambitious personal work he's been thinking about for many, many years. And uh, it's an inquiry into uh, the future. It has a lot of themes uh, considering what, type of future we wish to make for ourselves as a culture and um you know he's he's my dad's really an optimist and feels like we have so much potential as a you know humanity and as a culture to to um to improve our lot and make things better and create a world that's uh uh you know focused on art and learning and thinking and sharing and family and so it's a movie that talks about these matters but it's a drama. It's a love story. It's also, you know, a film that that is, uh, you know, has all that as you'd expect. But uh, that's a little taste of, of what it pertains to. All I can say is it's going to be big. Good. <laughs> and very finally, Roman, um, are there amusement parks in your future? I sure hope so. You know, I mentioned in an interview that I had a fantasy of being invited to design an amusement park, and so I'm hoping to get that call. Uh, but I love, you know, my work that I've done in videos and films and everything, it all, the, the common thread is a sense of delight, evoking a sense of delight, a sense of play. I love things that are fun. And uh, so uh, an amusement park hits all those buttons for me. Looking forward to it. Good, good. <laughs> so, Roman, thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us. And uh, um, I'm sure everybody's really enjoyed it and been stimulated by it. So thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Excellent. Appreciate it. Cool.
Okay, that was Roman Coppola, Stephen Luby and the wonderful students at the VCA Film School. We hope you enjoyed this particular podcast and we look forward to bringing you our next one next week. Take care and happy travels.